And welcome back to the third half of our show. I hope you, I know it was a short break, but I, I hope you got some rest during that time. I hope so too, because um, as I mentioned before, while Saving Private Ryan has a lot of plot, at least it's something that you can say goes from A to B to C and so on. Thin Red Line, a little different from that, and Claude is about to explain why or how. Yeah, so it's late 1942, and we are on the other side of the war here. U.S. Army Private Witt, uh, played by Jim Caviezel, is AWOL from his unit, and he's living with the Melanesian natives in the South Pacific. Unfortunately for him, he is found, and he is imprisoned on a troop carrier by his company NCO. That would be First Sergeant Welsh, who is played by Sean Penn. In Welsh's conversation with Witt, it is clear that the private is unenthusiastic about serving in the Army. The men of this particular company have been brought to Guadalcanal as reinforcements in the campaign to secure Henderson Field and then seize the island from the Japanese. As they wait in the holds of a Navy transport ship, they contemplate their lives and the impending invasion. Meanwhile, up on deck, the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Tall, played by Nick Nolte, talks with his commanding officer. That would be Brigadier General Quintard, played by John Travolta. They're discussing the invasion and its importance, with Tall going ashore with C Company, while Quintard will remain on the ship. Tall's voiceover reveals that he's been passed over for promotion, and this battle might be his last chance to command a victorious operation. C Company lands on Guadalcanal, and they're uh, rather unopposed, and they march to the interior of the island, and they bump into natives and the mutilated corpses of intercepted Marines and Ranger Scouts, and that's a sign that the Japanese have been there. They arrive near Hill 210, that's a key Japanese position near the airfield. The Japanese have placed a bunker housing several machine gun nests at the top of the hill, and that gives them a full view of the valley below. Any force attempting to climb that hill can easily be cut down by machine gun fire and mortar rounds. A brief shelling of the hill begins the next day at dawn, and shortly after that, C Company attempts to take the hill, but they are immediately uh, repelled by gunfire from the bunker. Among the first killed in the battle is the leader of the attacking platoon. That would be 2nd Lieutenant White, uh, played by Jared Leto. During the battle, Lieutenant Colonel Tall orders the company commander, Captain Staros, that's played by uh, Elias Coteus, to take the bunker by frontal assault at whatever cost. But here's the thing. They're doing this over the radio here, and Staros is refusing because he's unwilling to treat his men as cannon fodder. He keeps telling Tall, I don't think you understand what's going on down there. When the two reach a stalemate, Tall decides he's going to join Staros on the front line to see the situation for himself. And of course, by the time he arrives, the Japanese resistance seems to have lessened a little bit, and Tall's opinion of Staros seems to have been sealed. Meanwhile, during the battle, Private Witt, who has been assigned punitively as a stretcher-bearer, asks to rejoin the company, and he is permitted to do so. Tall puts together a detachment of a few men to determine the strength of the Japanese bunker. Private Bell, played by Ben Chaplin, reports back that there are five machine guns in the bunker. Bell joins another small detachment of men, led by Captain Gaff, uh, who's played by John Cusack, on a flanking mission to take the bunker. The operation is a success, and it looks like C Company stands poised to overrun one of the last Japanese strongholds on the island. They are successful in this regard. Well, the Japanese they find are mostly malnourished and they're dying and they don't put up much resistance. 
Staros is relieved of his command by Lieutenant Colonel Tall, who deems him too soft for the pressures of combat and suggests that he apply for reassignment and become a lawyer for the Judge Advocate General Corps in Washington, D.C. What's more, he's going to be put up for a couple of medals, including a Purple Heart, because he's got a scratch on his face and a couple on his hands. For their efforts, the men are given a week's leave, although not all of them are able to enjoy it fully. The airfield where they're based comes under Japanese artillery bombardment, Private Bell, who wants only to return to his wife, receives a letter from her informing him that she has fallen in love with somebody else and wishes to divorce him. Meanwhile, Wit comes across the Melanesians and he notices that they don't trust him anymore and they're arguing regularly with one another. It's a big change from the way they behaved at the start of the film when they seem to be carefree and generally peaceful. Some weeks later, the company is sent on a patrol up a river, but with an inexperienced first a uh, lieutenant named George Band. He's played by Paul Gleason at the head. Uh, when Japanese artillery falls close to their position, uh, Band orders a trio of men to scout upriver with Wit volunteering to go along. They encounter an advancing Japanese column and they're attacked. One of the men gets hit and the injury appears to be a fatal one. As a means of buying time for Private Fife to go back and inform the rest of the unit, Wit draws away the, the Japanese and Fife, who incidentally is played by Adrian Brody, does manage to get away, but Wit is quickly surrounded by the Japanese squad, who demands that he surrender. Wit stands there staring around him, but ultimately accepts his fate. He raises his rifle and he's shot down immediately. Wit's dead body is later found but buried by Welsh and his squad mates, and as the rest of the men leave, Welsh allows himself a moment to grieve over Wit. Sometime later, a few days before Christmas of December of 1942, C Company receives a new commanding officer. It's Captain Bosch, played by George Clooney. Uh, he gives this impassive speech to the Marines about them being a family, and he's the father figure. And then a little later, in our final scene, Sergeant Welsh, Private Fife, Lieutenant Band, Private Bell, and the rest of the surviving members of C Company pass a graveyard full of their fallen comrades on their way to board a waiting landing craft, which evacuates them from Guadalcanal. We hear the contemplations of some of the soldiers as the transport moves away from the island, and we briefly return to the island, where it appears to be peaceful again for the time being. Okay, so this was based on a novel by James Jones, who is probably best remembered today for writing the novels that the Oscar-winning movie From Here to Eternity was based on. Now, Jones, like the main character in From Here to Eternity, um, the one played in the mo that movie by Montgomery Clift, was someone who loved the army. However, in while he loved the camaraderie that he experienced with the men, he hated the military, at least the military officers, and he also hated war. And he hated, in particular, war movies, which he felt were pretty cliche-ridden and glorified something that he felt wasn't glorious at all. Um, I own the Criterion edition of The Thin Red Line, which includes an essay he wrote for a magazine criticizing several war movies that had been made up to that point, which was the early 60s. He does not mention it by name, but this was not the first movie version of The Thin Red Line. There was one made in 1964, which I don't know if it's still there, but I watched it on YouTube. 
And Jack Warden played uh, Sergeant Welsh in the movie, and he's probably the best thing about it. <laughs> and Care Dullier plays a part that sort of seems like a composite of um, Belle, the character that Ben Chaplin plays, and Dahl, played in the 98 version by Dash Mihawk. And it's, you know, a standard war movie made at the time. Uh, what this version of Thin Red Line is, is something else again, which leads us to Terrence Malick and leads me, even though I know our time is short, to make one of those connections that may not seem like it's making sense when I start it, but trust me, it does. Um, the year before this movie came out, uh, saw a movie come out called Gross Point Blank, which starred John Cusack. Mm -hmm. um, and he plays a hitman who, for various reasons, goes back to his hometown for his 10-year high school reunion, uh, even though he had disappeared from there before graduation under mysterious circumstances. And he runs into a classmate played by Jeremy Piven, and they're talking while Piven is driving him someplace and all of a sudden Piven stops in the middle of the conversation and says 10 years man 10 years and I bring that up because it had been 20 years since Malick's last movie Days of Heaven which came out in 1978 and so People were, which was only a second movie, by the way, and people were somewhat eager, surprised, uh, but mostly eager to work with him once word came out that Malik was going to be making a movie of The Thin Red Line. And Sean Penn even sent him a message uh, saying, you know, just give me a dollar and tell me when to show up. But half of Hollywood, it seems, was ready to work with him because Malik's first two movies had, well, not, well, also because he had been seemingly a recluse during that 20 years, although in reality, there were a few projects he tried to make that never got off the ground. But also because those two movies were distinctive and poetic. And as Dash Mihawk put it on the Criterion edition that I own, that he signed up for a war movie and what he got was a poem. <laughs> so this is basically very different from the approach that Spielberg um, took with Saving Private Ryan, but I think it works equally well. And I'm going to talk a little more about that in a moment. But first, uh, Claude, what did you think of this movie? Well, it's generally a very different story. I mean, and you, you talked earlier about like the good war or the bad war type of thing. And I mean, yeah, it's the same war here, but I think it, it's important to recognize that we get the hints early on. And then Colonel Tall, Nick Nolte's character, pretty much says straight out, you know, like, here's his motivation for doing what he's doing the way he's doing it is like, you know what, people think I'm a loser, I need to get a win here. And and so the fact that his motivations are not incredibly great, um, you know, goes a long way toward toward giving you some kind of understanding of what's going on and and 
And yes, it is important to take this hill and to take this particular you know piece of land and and to to clear the uh, the the island so that we can we can go and kill the Japanese because Guadalcanal was our first big land offensive against the Japanese in World War II. Um, but the way he's going about it, you know, you're you're going to have a little bit of a rough time with. And and so I, I think it was kind of interesting to to see that uh, bit of bit of tension going on. And and you know the other thing that that you see like Malik also has this way of like where still Spielberg will drop you right in the middle of the action and, and everything's going on and chaotic. And you get some of that within red line too, but you also get these occasional shots. Like, you know, Malik will just insert suddenly a shot of a bird or a, the sun shining through leaves or something like that. You suddenly go somewhere else for a while and it's only for a few seconds and then you come back to the action. And I found that kind of interesting that, that there's a little bit of a, not always like a life goes on kind of thing, but there, that there is a certain randomness to all of this. And again, there are characters who specifically discuss this late in the film. It's like, it doesn't matter whether you're a good person or a bad person. Sooner or later, you're going to, somebody's going to get killed and it really doesn't matter like how careful you are or how smart you are, you know. You're just going to get shot and that's the way it goes. And so we get a little bit of that throughout, which I really, really appreciate. In fact, there was one scene, there was a whole battle going on. And the next thing you know, we're looking at like this little fledgling bird on the ground and, and, you know, trying to just kind of work its wings and, and like it had just hatched or something like that. And that was a long shot. It went from for like 15, 20 seconds before we got back into all the firefighting going on. I loved stuff like that, believe it or not. It seemed a little bit weird at the time and jarring, and I was like, you know what? I'm starting to appreciate what he's doing here. Well, that is part of Malick's approach Yeah, here. I know, that's not in just Not in just the poetic nature that Mihawk referred to when talking about the movie, but also the fact that he's basically viewing war as a violation of nature mm -hmm. yeah and you get that you know starting out with the peaceful scenes that that open the wit, film it, yeah that open the film with wit and the uh, natives and he's with another soldier by the way um train right who is played by john d smith and though though it took me uh, viewing with the captions on to figure this out. He is one of the folks who is providing voiceover in the movie, uh, Train. And I'm going to get to the voiceover um, parts in uh, a little later. But um, it's important to remember that before Malik was a director, he was also a journalist and also studied philosophy. Um, in, and he was a teacher of philosophy in college. You know, Anthony Lane of The New Yorker, who liked the movie with reservations, uh, thought that basically the movie was a product of Malick's taking Jones's novel and then uh, deciding to slap a copy of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson on it. And there's a certain amount of truth to that, which is not to say that Malick is um, unfaithful or um, 
mostly unfaithful to Jones' novel, with one exception, which I'm going to get to in a moment. But there are large chunks of uh, Jones's novel in the movie. The whole scene of Tall berating uh, Staros over the radio, that's all from Jones's novel. And so are the parts where a soldier, I think it's the, I'm not sure if it's the one played by uh, Woody Harrelson or uh, someone else who has a grenade go off in his pants. Um, that's uh, taken fr- right from the novel. And then when um, Staros is going to, uh, Staros tells Welsh that he's recommending him for a medal, and Welsh, you know, says that, you know, basically he wants no part of that at all and says that the war is only about property. That's all taken from the novel. Mm -hmm. So he does do a good job of staying true to the essence of the novel as well as some of the plot points and the dialogue. It's in other ways that he is not faithful to the novel, and that is basically, you know, getting part to the philosophical parts of the movie, which are the voiceovers. Now, this was not the first movie that Malick used voiceover in. Uh, Both Badlands, his first movie, and Days of Heaven have voiceover. But both of those movies, it was one solitary character who was delivering the voiceover. Sissy Spacek in Badlands and Linda Manns in Days of Heaven. And they were talking about what was going on on screen for the most part, or, you know, they were sharing what they deemed thoughts were worth sharing with the audience about. But it was pretty straightforward. Here, for the most part, the voiceovers, which are done by Wit and uh, Tall and Train and Private Bell. And I think Welsh maybe has one. Yeah, there were like five or I six different re- characters who were... Yeah, but... All of those voiceovers are not describing what's going on in the movie. They're all giving a character's inner thoughts. Mm-hmm. So they're not spoken as narration. And so that's one of the ways that this movie was a transition for Malik. Uh, but before I get to that, I should say that I think the voiceovers are pretty well done. For the movie and they capture for me the fact that as you say and this is the one thing that the movie shares with saving private ryan the fact that you know this the war or war in general is random anyone can die anyone can survive and it doesn't matter what kind of person you are it, it, it's I, I I did like the voiceover. The one thing that bugged me about them was that so many characters had similar uh, had similar accents, and I think you went through the same thing a little bit in that respect because you had to watch the captioning to find out who was uh, 
who was saying what. And, and so, yeah, it, it, so there was one point where, and in fact, you mentioned train specifically and train come up in a, in a voiceover and it was identified as such. And I was like, Oh wait, that's him saying that. I thought it was the other guy saying so. Um, you know, that, that was a little bit confusing, but once I leaned into that a little bit, I was, I was really, uh, uh, fine with it, especially since, you know, the, it wasn't even thinking too deeply about what was going on specifically on screen. It was really almost like a philosophical type discussion, the way people were thinking and, you know, and, and the word poetry keeps coming up and that's, yeah, that's kind of the way the people were, were thinking. They were thinking in these poetic terms. And I know like a couple of the voiceovers were literally lifted from poetry and, and, and so forth. And that, that makes sense in its own little way, because sometimes that's the stuff that sticks in your head when you're just thinking random thoughts. Right. And uh, another way that this was sort of a transition for Malik, um, there are a lot of long takes here, mm-hmm. particularly when um, the soldiers are going through the grass up the hill to try and take the Japanese uh, machine gun nest. Um, I believe that um, John Toll, who was the cinematographer for the movie, developed a special type of tool or special type of camera that allowed him to carry the camera through the grass like that to make it look so effective. But there are scenes like that and there are other long takes and tracking shots and um, conventionally staged scenes of dialogue in the movie. But it was this movie where Malik was starting to go towards the style that he has now, which is mostly voiceover, not a lot of dialogue scenes, and a lot of very quick editing. And in this movie, it's mostly confined to the uh, flashback scenes of Bell and his wife, who is yeah. played, I don't remember if you mentioned, I by Miranda Otto. And I have to say, um, I thought those scenes worked. And there is a gorgeous shot um, of Otto when she's on a swing and the way that tall rotates the camera it looks like you're seeing her upside down Mm -hmm. and i have to say that when i first heard about this movie coming out i had not seen badlands or days of heaven so this was my first malik so while i wasn't hostile toward it i was you know, agnostic about it. You know, I was going to see it probably because of the cast, you know, but as far as Malik goes, I was like, who's he? Whereas with Spielberg, I was already a big fan. So I, I was eager to see Saving Private Ryan. But when I saw the trailer and I saw that shot on the swing, that convinced me, okay, I'm going to see this. And I loved the movie and I've been a big Malik fan ever since. But those Um, flashback scenes because they're done so differently from the rest of the movie and yet in a style that fits the movie because you know these are memories that Bell has of his wife I think they work very well 
They really, really do. I love that shot too of the swing. And, and, you know, we were just talking not that long ago about like unsexy nudity, right? Where people are getting naked, but they're not necessarily a sexy shot. And you don't look at it with that, that prurient interest. And in the flashbacks that Bell is having where it's him and his wife, you have a lot of scenes where it's very sexy and they're both totally dressed, you know, and, and it's even possible that you're getting images of the two of them making love. And yet they're both completely dressed. There is one shot where she is uh, nude. Um, she's in a bathtub and she's face down. Um, but other than that, it's, it's like th this, I was like, wow, you know, for such a short bit I was like, this is kind of hot. And I, it was, and it really conveyed to, to me at least, you know, that, that, you know, this is somebody that he was deeply in love with and that he really, really was, was eager to get back to. And, and so it just made it that much more painful when we get the letter back from her, where she says she's fallen in love with, it was somebody in the air force and she wants to divorce and, you know, marry this guy. And I know we'll see each other again. And you can see Bell just like reading this thing. And he just kind of looks off and he gives himself like just bitter little laugh before he walks out of the shot. I love that. And if we could come back briefly to, you had talked about long shots uh, or, or shots that are long in, in time. Um, there, there's one close to the end with Wit and Welsh where the two of them are talking to one another and Wit's just trying to like parse out like, you know, what Welsh is about. Like, why do you, why do you behave these different ways toward me? And that's quite a long shot. And it's following for the most part Wit as he is walking in big circles around the room while Welsh is just sitting in one corner. And at one point what happens is the camera is following Caviezel and then it stops on a birdcage and it stays with the birdcage until Caviezel walks back in and contemplates the cage a little bit. And then again, that, that whole, you know, what's natural and what's not kind of scene. And then it continues to follow him as he walks away from the birdcage. I loved, loved, loved that particular shot. Yeah, no, that is a good scene. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Malik was uh, faithful to Jones's novel in a lot of ways, but you know, unfaithful. I'm, I'm sure in Adrian how he, Brody would would dispute that. <laughs> I was just about to get to that. So, as I mentioned, when Malik um, announced that he was doing this, or when the announcement was made that Malik was making a movie of this, it seemed like half of Hollywood jumped at the chance to uh, be in this movie. Bruce Willis, uh, who was at the time a major star, uh, Eve, and okay, I should be a lot kinder about that given what we've learned about him, uh, but at the time, um, you know, people would have begged him to appear in movies, and here he was offering to pay his own way to meet with Malik. Um, just so he could be considered for this movie because he was that excited about doing this. And so you had a lot of actors who were uh, in this and who were filmed in this. However, Malik is, well, I should say, while Spielberg is one of those directors who tends to edit in camera so that basically most of what he shoots will show up in uh, his movie, Malik is one of those people 
who basically shoots a lot of footage and puts it all together in the editing room. And so as a result, a lot of actors who sign up to do his movies uh, end up on the cutting room floor, uh, either cut out altogether. Mickey Rourke apparently had a major role that was cut out. Billy Bob Thornton recorded narration that was going to be used for the entire movie before Malik decided to have the voiceovers of other actors do it instead. And Fife, who was the one of, if not the major characters of the novel, uh, and Adrian Brody signed up for it uh, because of that. Uh, in this movie, he's cut down significantly to the point that even though he does appear in a number of scenes, he barely has any dialogue. Mm -hmm. And Brody, unfortunately only found out about that when he saw the movie. And needless to say, he does not like talking about this movie and who can blame him. Uh, and that's also why um, you've got Clooney, for example, only appearing in one scene, mm -hmm. even though by this point he was a well-known name. He does have... Um, a deleted scene that is on the Criterion edition of the DVD, which is straight from the book, and um, why Travolta is, um, you know, only in one scene. Although I would argue that his scene is very necessary because it explains to you where Tall is coming from. Yeah. And Travolta really plays the arrogance of the character very well. And so that you know why Tall, as you put it, is uh, wanting to take that hill because he wants to show Travolta's character that he is capable of much more. Yeah. Um, I, I, it, it, it was, it was kind of interesting and it, especially in as much as you, so, you know, there, there are times when, it, when you get like an, an actor who isn't credited, uh, because you want to surprise the audience a little bit, such as like Bruce Willis and nobody's fool or, or, or because there's like some kind of reveal that, that, that has to go on. And so you don't want that to, to really become a big deal thing. And there are other times when, you know, it, it's, you know, there are different reasons for doing this kind of thing. And the, the billing on this particular film is really weird because like George Clooney appears pretty prominently and, and John Travolta is like nearly impossible to find. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And I realize a lot of times these things are contractual in nature, but it's just kind of interesting. Like you look at the posters and you see like, oh, this guy's in this film and this guy's in this film and this guy's in this film. And then you get to the end of the film and you're like... Well, where the hell was he? You know, and, 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 and so it, and that kind of struck me as a little bit interesting is, is like, I'm looking for, you know, the, you know, like say the credit order and, you know, people who were pretty prominent in the film are way down and people who were barely in the film are way up. And I guess that's, you know, a little bit, you know, a, a function of, uh, of, of, you know, just the way Malik happens to work. Right. And at the same time, even though, you know, unlike Saving Private Ryan, which just has 
one main star and a lot of character actors, although recognizable faces throughout. Um, I don't believe we mentioned Paul Giamatti or Leland Orser, who both have small but um, but very good performances in the movie. Uh, With Malik, you know, you have a lot of stars in this movie. Uh, a lot of very um, top-billed actors at the time, including Cusack and um, Nolte and Travolta and Clooney. But even though they may not, the time that they're on screen may vary, you know, it doesn't come off badly because, again, it speaks to how random the war is that, you know, no matter who you may be, um, it doesn't matter. That's not going to determine whether you live or die in war because war is so indeterminate. Yeah, I follow. (laughs) Okay. Um, I don't believe I have uh, anything else for this. Do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I'm willing to to wrap this one up. We have we have gone over a lot of material. Although it is worth noting that that you know there are a lot of times when we look at these um, at these films that that you know took place many years ago, and we have these you know before they were famous kind of things. And both of these films have a lot of actors who were fairly well known at the time. And so this wasn't really before they were famous. Some of them were just kind of mid career and on their way up and you know, landed in other things, but, but I, I found that interesting. And the other thing actually that occurs to me is that, you know, in both of these cases, you've got actors who appear to be a little bit on the older side, which is kind of interesting because it does follow what you would see in your typical world war two movie. You know, we're looking at these, these Vietnam movies and we see all these very, very young actors. Everybody's 18, 19, 20 years old, that kind of thing. And, and got all the baby faces going on. But that's what was going on in Vietnam. Whereas in World War II, the average age of the soldier was 26, right? Because they were just taking every able-bodied man from 18 up until, I don't know, 112 and, and putting them in there. So you did get older people who were fighting in, in World War II. And so while you might look at you know, some of these actors and say, aren't they a little bit old for that role? The fact is, no, no, they were not. And that's why you were able to get like a Sean Penn who was not in his, you know, early twenties at that point or, or somebody like that, or even think back to when we talked uh, just a couple uh, episodes ago about the best years of our lives. Okay. Where you've got Dana Andrews and you've got Frederick March, you know, neither of whom were especially young guys, but it works because World War II had a broader range of age going on as far as the men that we sent over. And also, as I pointed out when we talked about the various adaptations of Little Woman, mm-hmm. that people who were 30 in uh, 1942 and 1944 uh, looked much different than people who are 30 today, also, especially yeah. those who have been through a war. Now, I'm going to wrap this up by saying that although, although the two movies do share a few things in common, including the fact that uh, both of them were shot elsewhere other than where they take place, although there are a few scenes in the said red line that were shot at Guadalcanal, but 
other than that, you've got two very different approaches here. And although I do slightly prefer Saving Private Ryan, I think both approaches work. And we're going to get into that in a mini episode that will come out after this. But Claude, which do you prefer? Mm, do I have a preference? I, I really, really like them both just on their own merits. And, and you know, this, this kind of falls in where, you know, like, you know, just a few episodes ago, we were talking about best years of our lives and it's a wonderful life is like, I don't know why you would necessarily compare the two. They both got different themes going on. They've both got different locations going on. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, in, in this case, they're both World War II films, but one is in Europe, one is in the Pacific. They've got different, I, I like them both on their own merits, really. I and, and from that standpoint, I personally wouldn't make this like an either or choice. You can like both because they're not really the same the way that, say, Secaucus 7 was with the Big Chill or Strange Love and Failsafe or even High Noon Rio Bravo. No, I get that. I'm just saying that, you know, I do think, you know, you can like both, as I said at the beginning. Yeah. I'm just saying that, you know, if I had to give the edge to one, I'd give it to Saving Private Ryan, but that is nothing, that is to take nothing away from Thin Red Line. I, yeah, and I would probably anyway, go with, with, with Private Ryan in, in that respect, but I don't understand, I guess, in that, you know, in that particular case, like the dichotomy of choice in this one. That's all. But anyway, this is uh, when we tell you that Saving Private Ryan, uh, you can stream now on Netflix. Yes. And it's also available to rent or buy from most of the other uh, rental services. While for the Thin Red Line, you can stream that on Paramount Plus as well as Epics, mm -hmm. And then also, uh, if you subscribe to either of those services through Amazon, you can watch through those. And then also uh, stream through uh, Spectrum and DirecTV and Tubi with ads and rent or buy through most other streaming services. And both are available on DVD in various editions. I have the two DVD edition of Saving Private Ryan and the Criterion edition of The Thin Red Line. And I would recommend both, uh, particularly because we need physical media now. Yeah. But anyway. And for what it's worth, the 64 version of Thin Red Line is still available on the YouTube um, I couldn't find it anywhere else, though. I did do a little bit of looking while you were chit-chatting. Oh, the 1964 Thin Red Line? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So as far as what's coming up next, yeah, uh, we're going to get off. We're going to get off the soapbox for a while, <laughs> and we're instead going to go to the record store. More and physical we're media. Talk about, yeah, so we're going to talk about two movies set at uh, record stores uh, from the year 1995, Empire Records, and from the year 2000, High Fidelity. And both these movies, in addition to being available on uh, DVD, are uh, well available to stream. Empire Records, you can uh, stream through Showtime, as well as uh, Showtime if you subscribe to them through uh, the Roku channel or through Amazon. And then also through Fubo, DirecTV, and Spectrum. And you can rent or buy it through most other streaming services, whereas High Fidelity... 
uh, is currently streaming on HBO, HBO Max, and uh, Max Go, as well as Cinemax, if you get it through Amazon, and DirecTV and Spectrum On Demand. And then you can also rent or buy it through uh, the normal uh, streaming services. And if you have a question or a comment, you can email us. Uh, our email address is wordsandmovie.gmail.com. And you can find me, Sean Gallagher, on Facebook. And you can also um, look at our uh, Facebook page as well. And I am still only lurking on Instagram. And uh, how about you, Claude? Well, you can find me on the uh, Twitter machine at Claude Call. You can check out my other podcast, How Good It Is, at HowGoodItIs.com. And uh, don't forget that the show itself does have its own Twitter feed, words underscore movies pod. Okay, so thanks for listening, and uh, we will uh, get together next time. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Please take us away. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare, and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. 